Section 4 of The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 9, April 1898. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Notes on the Wild Fowl and Game Animals of Alaska by E. W. Nelson. Biological Survey. U.S. Department of Agriculture. Among the many interesting features to be seen by visitors to Alaska, the animal life is noteworthy for several reasons. During the brief summer, the otherwise desolate tundras are animated by swarms of waterfowl which arrive from the south in spring as soon as the bare ground begins to appear, and after a short delay, set about their summer housekeeping. The waterfowl on the rivers and lakes of the interior are the familiar species which winter among the ponds and marshes of the western United States. The Canada, Hutchins, white-fronted and snowy geese are there with swans and freshwater ducks of many species. Besides these, sandhill cranes and numerous waders abound. One of the most strikingly colored species along the small tributaries of the Yukon is the harlequin duck. The most interesting part of the bird life of this region, however, is found along the coast of Bering Sea. Four species of eider ducks occur there, some of which are very handsome. Among these, the king, stellars, and spectacled eiders are shown in the accompanying illustrations. The emperor goose is another fine bird peculiar to this country. It has its home in the marshy region between the mouths of the Yukon and Kuskokwim rivers. It is the most elegantly dressed of its kind in America. The top and sides of the head and neck are snowy white. The chin, throat, and underside of the neck blackish, and the feathers of the back a soft, silky gray color bordered by a black crescent near the end and tipped with white the under surface is similar but duller and the feet are vivid orange the black brant pass along the coast of bering sea in great numbers every spring and afford royal sport to persons fortunate enough to choose good stands while the flight lasts during the four years the writer lived at st michael Waterfowl was a very important item in the bill of fare, and, when the frosty autumn days approached, he sallied out with his companions into the marshes to lay in a supply of ducks and geese for winter. The question of cold storage cut no figure, for the two or three hundred birds brought in were drawn and hung up in an old warehouse, and the climate did the rest, enabling us to have roast duck or goose during the entire winter. Among the numerous berries growing wild on the treeless hills of this coast, a kind of blueberry is very abundant in September, and the young ducks feed upon it until they become excessively fat and so delicately flavored that they are delicious morsels. We became tired of hung duck, however, before the winter ended, and when the first solitary goose came flying over in spring, on a reconnoitering trip, there was general rejoicing. I still remember the hearty zest with which we put an extra edge on our knives 
and attacked the pioneer old gander that fell to our guns he was lean and tough after his long flight but was thoroughly enjoyed as an earnest of the coming season of plenty two kinds of ptarmigan are common on the mainland and will be considered dainty birds by many a hungry prospector although to tell the truth they are about the poorest flavored of the american grouse their handsome summer plumage of mottled brown gives way in winter to one of snowy white in winter in the valley of the cuscoquim the ptarmigan called willow grouse gather in large flocks during my sledge journeys i sometimes encountered flocks of hundreds among the patches of scrubby willows and when flushed it seemed as if the snowy surface of the ground had suddenly burst up and taken wing when the first mossy knolls appear in spring the willow grouse begins to lose its snowy winter dress at first a few brown feathers show about the base of the bill and gradually increase in number until the entire head becomes brown while the body is still white this progressive change keeps pace with the melting snow and with the disappearance of the last drifts the last white feather has been dropped and the bird is in full summer garb the willow grouse begins its courtship in may with the appearance of the first brown feathers and it is vigorously carried on with loud challenging notes of defiance accompanied by many fierce rough-and-tumble fights when the ground is mostly bare the snow remaining only in scattered drifts the males choose these white patches as the stage upon which to strut and ruffle for the admiration of their female friends in the tundras they may be seen and heard on all sides as they fly up with stiffened wings a few yards above the snowbanks and then glide down uttering loud harsh notes every now and then the efforts of some gallant cock become too obnoxious for his neighbor who starts full tilt for his detested rival the latter likes nothing better and meets the enemy in mid-air they clinch and fall to the ground apparently using beak wings and claws in the encounter during such times the molt of white feathers is profuse and the combatants are at the center of a perfect blur of whirling plumage directly one of the birds gets enough and starts off in hasty flight pursued for thirty or forty yards by the victor who then gives up the chase and fairly splits his throat with exultant notes the eskimos take advantage of this belligerency and snare many ptarmigan by means of fine sinew nets placed on small stakes set on the snow around stuffed skins of male birds the hunter conceals himself and imitates the challenge cries until a neighboring grouse dashes blindly at his supposed rival and becomes enmeshed in the net aside from the birds which have a definite value as food are numerous smaller species among which the whiskey jack will become a familiar character to the miners he is a kind of jay with a dull smoky brown coat and bright inquisitive eyes and is withal an intelligent and companionable little chap who has no hesitation in sharing your camp for the gratification of a frank curiosity and sound appetite his impish ways were always highly entertaining to me 
and I do not doubt will furnish amusement to many a gold hunter in his lonely camp. Although I have dwelt upon the birds because they are more numerous and more generally distributed than most other kinds of game, the man who loves the rifle will find his opportunity among the mountains and valleys of the interior. Formerly, large mammals were much more numerous in Alaska than at present, and the decrease has come about almost entirely since our ownership of the country. The history of the fur seal is well known. The sea otter is another animal that is passing away. Its doom is even more certain than that of the fur seal, for it is a dangerous thing for an animal to wear a coat worth from five hundred to a thousand dollars. All that has kept the sea otter from extinction is its shyness, and the fact that the stormy parts of the sea it frequents render its pursuit hazardous and uncertain. Upon the mainland are several fine mammals, among which native reindeer are the most generally distributed. There are two kinds of these deer, a large dark-colored one called the woodland caribou, which lives in the wooded district of the upper Yukon, and a smaller, paler kind, called the barren ground caribou, which lives in the open tundras or treeless country. Barren ground caribou were once exceedingly numerous, and the coast hills along the shores of Norton Sound are still scored with their trails, leading diagonally up to the cool summits, where the animals used to go in summer, to avoid the mosquitoes that swarm on the tundras. But even so far back as 1877, the caribou was very rare along most of the coast of Bering Sea. When Alaska passed under American control, it became possible for the natives to secure breech-loading rifles, especially where whalers and trading schooners called, and the result was a rapid slaughter of the large game. Since the barren ground caribou usually live in the open tundras where there is no cover, it is extremely difficult for the hunter to approach unseen. Like the antelope of our western plains, they are inquisitive animals, and before starting away, often make a circuit about anything which excites their interest. Before they became sophisticated by the common use of guns, the Eskimos had an ingenious method of stalking them in open ground, which the old hunters told me was very successful. The Eskimos hunted in pairs, and when they found a bunch of caribou on an open plain, they would start directly for the animals, one hunter walking immediately behind the other, keeping step with their bodies touching so that from the front they appeared like one man. When they were still some distance away, the caribou would throw up their heads and start off to circle around the intruders. The hunters kept on in their original course, apparently paying no attention to them, and when the men passed the first little bush, knoll, or other cover, the one in the rear sank down behind it while his companion kept on. The caribou continued to circle as the single hunter advanced, and were almost certain to pass close to the concealed man and thus afford a deadly shot at short range. The sudden appearance of the concealed hunter drew the attention of the game from the man who had gone on, enabling him, 
to drop flat upon the ground without being noticed. The caribou, in starting off wildly from the new danger, often ran within shot of the man who had last concealed himself. Hunters told me that, in this way, they often got several shots before the animals finally gathered their wits and left the vicinity. The large woodland caribou of the upper Yukon lives in the forest with the moose. The latter ranges over much of the interior, and during my residence in the country, a single individual was killed in the Yukon Delta close to the sea, a very rare occurrence. In summer, they are rarely hunted by the Indians in the dense forests of the upper Yukon, but are killed every now and then on the banks of streams or while swimming across them. In winter, they wander from place to place, browsing on the tender twigs of cottonwoods, white birches and willows, until the increasing depth of snow forces them to unite in yards. When caught in deep snow or with a heavy crust, they are easily killed by the Indians who follow them on snowshoes. On the upper Yukon, the old method of moose hunting in early winter was for the Indians to go out on snowshoes after a heavy snowfall and search for fresh trails. When one was found, the swiftest runner, stripped to a shirt and breeches and carrying a light shotgun loaded with ball, started off after the moose, while the women and slower runners followed. Sometimes a moose would run eight or ten miles before being overtaken. At this season, the cold is generally very intense, and the hunter would quickly freeze if he stopped while heated from his long run and with so little clothing. For this reason, after killing the moose, he returned to camp at a run, leaving the followers to cut up and drag the carcass home. When there was a light crust, small dogs were used to bring the moose to bay and enable the hunter to kill it with less exertion. Before the snow fell in autumn, the moose were stalked in the dense spruce thickets, but they were very wary animals, and usually became alarmed and started off at a swift trot, with a great clatter of hoofs, before the hunter caught sight of them. At such times, the Indian, knowing the country and the habits of the game, would run at his best speed to the opposite side of the small basin or valley, and take a position where he could see for some distance on all sides, for when started in this manner, the moose often made a wide circuit and returned within gunshot. Two species of mountain sheep, quite different from one another, and from the Rocky Mountain bighorn, are known in northwestern America. The first of these, a superb snow-white animal, was described by the writer some years ago as Ovis Dali, in honor of Professor William H. Dahl, the pioneer scientific explorer on the Yukon. The specimens upon which my description was based were obtained from the Fort Reliance country by Mr. L. N. McQueston, now president of the Order of Yukon Pioneers. Dahl's mountain sheep is found over a wide area, from the low hills beyond the tree limit near the Arctic coast south across the Yukon and Kuskokwim to the Alaskan Range. Last year, Dr. J. A. Allen described another species from the headwaters of the Stikine River 
and named it Ovis stonae. But little is known of this handsome animal, which has a dark, almost iron-gray coat, very different from the white of doll's sheep. The discovery of these two sheep in northwestern America indicates that we may expect other interesting, if less striking, new forms of animal life in the mountains of that region. In the high mountains, bordering the Pacific coast, north of Sitka, mountain goats occur, but we have little definite information concerning their range and abundance. Owing to the white color of doll's sheep, it is quite probable that, in many cases, they may have been mistaken for goats. Bears also are very numerous in some places, and several kinds are known to occur. The huge bear of Kadiak and the Alaskan Peninsula is the largest species in the world, and the skull of an old male looks as if he belonged to the animal life of a former geologic age when beasts of gigantic size roamed the earth. Black bears are generally distributed over the mainland, except on the barren tundras bordering the Arctic coast. About the last of October, or first of November, they find a sheltered cleft or cavern in the rocks, where they make a bed of leaves and grasses, and hibernate until the warm days of April bring them out again. On the upper Yukon, the Indians kill them with arrows, guns, or spears. Some of the bravest and most powerful of the hunters will attack them armed only with a long-bladed knife. In such cases, the hunter wraps a blanket about his left hand and arm, and with it thus protected, thrusts it out for the bear to seize as it rises upon its haunches, giving him an opportunity to make a fatal thrust under the guard thus formed. Both Eskimos and Indians give these animals credit for supernatural knowledge and cunning. The Eskimo hunters are very careful not to speak in a disrespectful manner of bears, and are especially guarded against letting anyone know of their plan to go on a bear hunt. They believe firmly that if they should speak of such intention, these animals would know it at once and would lie in ambush to attack them. Bears figure largely in the folklore and ceremonial dances of the Eskimos on the lower Kuskokwim and Yukon rivers. About the Arctic coast, the polar bear is a regular winter visitor, and a half-grown individual was killed near St. Michael in August 1880. They are common on the pack ice of the Arctic Ocean north of Bering Strait, and many were seen during the cruise of the Corwin in 1881. The accompanying illustration represents a female killed by the writer near Wrangell Island while with the Corwin. In summer, these animals are usually well-fed and avoid encountering men whenever possible. In winter, when hunger presses, they become dangerous, and I have heard of several Eskimos who were killed and have seen others who were badly scarred from encounters with them. In the fall, as the pack ice comes south through Bering Strait, it brings great herds of walruses and many white bears. The latter sometimes reach the fur seal islands, but only at rare intervals. Some years, many of the bears fail to retreat beyond the strait, 
early enough in spring and are left stranded on st matthew and st lawrence islands during the summer of eighteen seventy four mr elliot and lieutenant maynard found them on st matthew island to the number of several hundred when these gentlemen landed on the neighboring hall island the same season sixteen white bears were in sight as the boat approached the shore ten of which were together on the beach quite a number were killed and none showed fight they were fat and when asleep were easily approached when aroused they stood up and sniffed at the party as if to learn whether they were friends or foes and when the men were scented the bears ran back into the hills at this time they were seen feeding on grass and roots with motions like those of a grazing hog aside from the whales the walrus is the largest alaskan mammal formerly it was very numerous around the islands and along the american coast of bering sea and the arctic ocean during the cruise of the corwin we saw thousands of them on the border of the pack ice the eskimos report the female walruses to be very dangerous in april and may when they have young at that time they say an old female will attack a man in a kayak on sight and becomes as fierce and dangerous as an old bear an eskimo living at cape vancouver once told me of an encounter he had had with a walrus while seal hunting in the drift ice off the cape in which he and a companion had a narrow escape they met and killed a young walrus without having seen the female a moment later she arose in the water and catching sight of the hunters uttered a hoarse bellowing cry and dashed at them the men paddled for their lives and reached a cake of ice just in time to escape here they were kept prisoners for nearly a day several times supposing she had gone they launched their kayaks but the moment they did so she appeared and drove them back on the ice during our cruise in the arctic we saw many females with young and the watchfulness of the old ones was very noticeable the young nearly always swam directly in front of its mother and the latter in diving always carried the little one under with her by resting the points of her tusks on its shoulders and forcing it down in the old days when caribou were abundant wolves were common and ran in large packs with the growing scarcity of caribou the wolves decreased until during my residence at st michael they were uncommon along the coast of bering sea and the adjacent interior the white and blue arctic or stone foxes are common on the barrens and red foxes are also common and much more widely distributed the region about dawson city was formerly noted for the number and quality of the black fox skins taken there every winter canada lynxes wolverines land otter american sable and mink are among the fur-bearing animals which helped make up the main wealth of alaska until recent developments among the quote, rats and mice and such small deer end quote, are many animals of more or less interest the whistling marmots live in the mountains about the upper yukon and tanana rivers 
and the bobtailed little conies are also found in that region. The last-named animal makes its home in broken masses of rock, and has an amusing way of barking at strange visitors with a squeaking voice, like that of a toy dog. The great increase in the population of Alaska, which is now taking place, cannot but have a decided effect upon the large game. Most of the prospecting parties will be provided with rifles, and will take every opportunity of securing an addition to their scanty camp fare. With this going on in thousands of localities in the hitherto unvisited areas, the effect will necessarily be disastrous to such animals as bears, mountain sheep, caribou, and moose. Unfortunately, not a museum in the world has even a passable representation from Alaska of any of these animals. The threatened early extermination of such fine species is to be greatly deplored, but cannot well be avoided, and it is altogether probable that within two or three years it will be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to secure specimens for scientific purposes. The U.S. National Museum in Washington is the proper repository for a full representation of the animals indigenous to our territory, for exhibition purposes as well as scientific study, and it will be a great loss to science if any of the large Alaskan mammals become extinct before a proper series of skins and skulls is in the possession of this institution. I wish to impress this upon settlers and others going to Alaska the present season, in the hope that, having their attention called to the importance of saving specimens, they may take a patriotic interest in placing them in the national capital. End of section 4. Recording by Linda Johnson.